Look at that. Did I do that? All right. <laughs> Jeff turned this thing on for me before I even got up here. Thank you, Jeff. Well, church, today we're going to we're going to finish out this series that we've been doing on hospitality and worship. And over the last six weeks, the prior six weeks, we've really talked about a couple of important things that I hope will remain with you as we go forward in our life as a church. But one is that God is a very hospitable God. God is always welcoming people in. He's always inviting. He's always reaching out. He's always preparing spaces for us and for others to be in relationship with him. And one of the great things about that that we receive is this blessing of being his sons and daughters if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That we are his family when we accept this gift that he offers us through his son, Jesus. But not only that, but then he invites us in turn to be welcoming to others. And there's great joy and benefit in being welcoming, but even greater joy and benefit in being welcoming as an ambassador of the gospel. And so uh, Howard already alluded to that. Sonia prayed about it. Ileana spoke of it in her prayer. Uh, hospitality is one of the most important things that we can do as a church. And it speaks to that commandment that God gave us to go and make disciples, to love your neighbors as yourselves. In regards to worship, we've talked about how God is a holy and glorious God who's deserving of our praises and our adoration and that the worship has, uh, it's not that it has nothing to do with music, it's just that music is only one expression of worship, but that worship is really the yielding of ourselves, the, the, the giving of ourselves to God for his glory. And uh, God, is, uh, God is both very intent on uh, inviting us into that worship for his own sake, but also for our sake. Because when we worship God with our lives, when we give our lives over to him, we receive the greatest blessing. But today I want to talk about that in both of those things, there are these tensions that come up. And, and I'm alert to the idea that uh, in a, if, we're doing a, if we were doing a, a six-part uh, sermon series on worship, that wouldn't be enough. Uh, time really to cover so so many things that we could address or a six-part series on hospitality wouldn't be enough and and we've I've kind of crammed both of those into this little six-week series and like how can you cover everything and so I'm just I'm alert I think you're aware we can't and that's okay but there are things that we can focus on so even today as I talk about tensions in worship tensions even in hospitality I don't mean to be exhaustive but I want to hit on two of them that I think are really important to address and for us to understand together. Um, as we jump into this, we have given a couple of definitions that I think are really helpful. So the first one, we, when we talk about hospitality, what we're talking about is the extension of the gospel through gracious acts of welcoming. We're saying that as, as we invite people into our lives, uh, and if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we know this good news that we've been forgiven and redeemed and restored, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. As we invite people into our lives, then they can have that same uh, joyful acceptance of the gospel that we have. But there's already a tension there, right? Because when you invite someone into your life, do you want to do that so that you can get them to do something? 
Or do you want to do that simply because you want to have a loving relationship with them? And so I would suggest that it's the second one. So already there's a tension there where we don't want to see people as projects. We don't want to see someone's relationship with God being the determining factor of whether we extend relationship to them. But that as we truly love people, just like all of the other things that we do in life, as we love people, we share with them the things that we love. And we share with them the things that we've learned. And we share with them the benefits we've received and we want them to receive the same. Um, but it is this gracious act of welcoming that is, I think, one of the best ways to display, to share, and to invite people into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because our relationship with them is merely uh, an image, a reflection, an extension of God's relationship with the world. And then also we have this definition of worship, and we looked at the English word, which means worth-ship. That's where it comes from. It is showing by your words and actions what God is worth to you. And then there's a tension built in there too, right away. Because how can we ever show God what he's worth to us? How could we ever display the great majesty, glory, grace of God in our actions of worship? And so we know that, that in these things there are tendencies to kind of fall off on one side or the other in our attempts to be faithful to these things. But I do want to talk about two types of tensions that come up for both hospitality and worship that we need to be alert to, that we need to be aware of if we want to be, again, faithfully living out these lives. And, and hopefully by now, if you've kind of been with us the last six weeks, you've got a sense of why these things are important. Uh, Jesus says the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we talk about worship, we're talking about an expression of that love to God. And then he says, the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And that's this gracious welcoming that we do for others around us uh, for the sake of the gospel, but also just for the sake of love. So the first tension that I want to talk about at, at length is this one right here, is that sometimes when we get involved in this kind of thing, uh, we have to be alert to some cultural expressions and expectations that come along with them. So I would love a little uh, participation here. What are some cultural expectations or expressions related to worship? If you were just to name out, call out some. Singing, and then if we dig down a little, what are some different ways that singing is done in different cultures and different places? A hymn book would be, an ex would be a cultural form for expressing our worship through singing. What's another? A choir, right? Yeah, gospel music. Different, yeah. Anything, anything else? Drums, dancing. Yeah, and when we think of drums, there's the drums like this, but then if you were maybe out in different parts of, of uh, you know, Africa, there might be different types of drums and drums being used in different ways for worship. And dancing would look different in one culture and another. What are some other things? I'm sure there's thousands of them. Yep, 
Yeah, have you been to a church where everyone stands up and you're like, wait, I gotta stand up, and then they're all sitting down, and you're like, wait, I gotta sit down? And everyone knows what to do unless you don't know what to do, right? And then in our church, we stand up a lot, and maybe people get tired of standing, and they're like, oh, why don't we ever sit down? <laughs> you know, in some churches, in some traditions, uh, everyone stands for the entire service. And the men stand on one side of the room, and the women stand on another side of the room. And no one ever sits. Uh, what are some other cultural expressions of worship? Food? That's right, they do. They use food in their worship of God. And even things like, what type of drink do we drink at communion, right? If you are in a more traditional liturgical church, you'll probably use wine. In a lot of Protestant churches, they, we use grape juice. Uh, even things like that. Uh, any, anything else? How people, yes. Right, how people dress. I, I know that, uh, um, that even over time in our church, uh, we find that the dress that we have is probably a little more casual than it was 15, 20 years ago, even. And so if you go back another 20, 30 years before that, it might look even different still. Um, when I grew up, men, virtually all men wore suits. And I remember even as a teenager, I wore a tie to church every Sunday. And so I learned how to tie a tie very young because that's what I wore to church. Uh, women wore dresses. And as Adrian mentioned, hats. And I remember in the summer, it was always really hard because the men were wearing suits and they needed the air conditioning really cold and the women were wearing dresses and they were all freezing and, uh, you know, things like that. What else, what else do we see as expressions of worship? Spontaneity versus liturgy. Spontaneity versus liturgy. Silence, right? Yeah, there's so many things, right? And we could, we could go on and talk about these all day. And as many of you know, there's often even conflict around these things. So I remember when we had our worship night um, a few weeks ago on that Saturday, and there were four different churches here. And we were talking to folks afterwards, and one of them from one of the churches said, oh, this was um, definitely more um, exuberant than what we're used to. And he was like looking for the right word. He's like, it was a little more uh, energetic. <laughs> Uh, but there, there are certainly communities where what we did would have looked very tame, right? And what I love about things like that is that, for, at least for that conversation, no one was judging anyone. We were just noticing and, and kind of enjoying the differences that we have. Um, but sometimes we get in these places where we judge people for what they have and what they do. Um, and, you know, I think, Adrian, you know, I wonder if, uh, from your example, if anyone's ever at any point in your life walked into church and seen somebody maybe dressed down and thought, why would they come that way to church? Why would they wear it? Don't they know they're coming to the presence of the Lord? Why would they dress down? I remember, I remember the first time I saw someone wear shorts to church. I was appalled. I mean, I was a teenager. I wore shorts every day of the week except Sunday. Because on the Lord's Day, you wear your Sunday best, right? And we used to have that phrase, your Sunday best. And uh, I just remember thinking, what is wrong with this person? Do they not know why we're here? You know, very judgmental attitude, isn't it? And I think a lot of us, we can do that. Or, or if you love the hymns and you kind of are down in the praise choruses, or if you love the praise choruses and you're down in the hymns, 
or all these different things where we can get caught up in how we worship. And uh, please don't pull it out and read it now, but at some point, read the cover of your bulletin. Uh, I was just reflecting this week there on the fact that Christianity is the only major world religion and possibly the only religion even among minor religions that I can think of. And please let me know if you know of examples. But it's the only major world religion that culturally no longer has its center of gravity. There's, it's no longer the, the dominant expression of Christianity it is not from the culture it came from. It's not, a, it's not a Jewish religion anymore. And it's not a Mediterranean religion anymore. It's not even a Western European religion anymore. It's really a world religion. And you can see its expression in different places in different parts of the world and, and see how very different it is. And my counterexample, and there's so many examples like this, but for example, in Islam, the Quran is only the Quran in Arabic. If you translate it into another language, they call it an interpretation. But we feel very comfortable and confident calling this a Bible, but it's in English. It couldn't be further away from the language that some of this was written in. And yet we feel totally confident and comfortable to think these are the words of God. And the same thing happens when you go to Korea. And the same thing happens when you go to South America or you go to Sub-Saharan Africa or you go to numerous places in Europe, uh, all over Asia. People call this book in their own language the Word of God. But you wouldn't do that in Islam because that's an interpretation. If you really want to be a faithful Muslim, you pray in Arabic. If you really want to be a faithful Muslim, you learn the language. But this is just one example of a cultural adaptation that the church has gone through. I mentioned previously when we were talking about worship that in, in a f not too long ago, I definitely within my memory and many of the memories of those who are in this room, there was deep conflict about whether churches should have organs or not. Any of you remember like living through this question and experiencing the conflict of that? And in the church I grew up in, we had an organ, but we also had an orchestra. It was a large church. And for some reason, the orchestra was not really seen as a massive departure from the organ, probably because uh, the orchestra is almost as old as the organ. Uh, maybe that was part of it. But in our youth meetings, we played guitars. But we would never play guitars in, the, in big church, as we called it. We would never bring those instruments into that space. And I remember the first time that the, our church had a service for adults with guitars, and it was on Sunday night, and they hosted it in the gym. They didn't even have it in the sanctuary. They wanted it to, to have a more relaxed feel, I guess. Um, but that was a big deal. Again, any of you like remember this? But before that, before that, all of the church's worship was the singing of scripture. And so the hymn book was anathema to many Christians. The idea that you or I could write our own songs to worship the Lord when, the God, had, when God had already given us his psalter right here in the book of Psalms, there was a big conflict over this in the church. And so these things are not new and they didn't start with the modern church. They've been around forever. So here's the thing. 
there is great freedom in worship. And a lot of times, in, especially when we're gathering with uh, groups that are not just us, like, for example, that Saturday night worship event, I, I kind of said from the front, guys, I want you to feel free to express your worship in different ways. If you, uh, you want to sit, sit. If you want to stand, stand. If you feel like just dancing, you can dance. Like, that's okay. And I made that really clear because I want people to know that there's freedom in worship. But in our freedom in worship, remember that it's not total freedom. That it's not that anything goes or that every cultural expression is fine. What's true is that every culture can express their worship to the Lord in a way that's appropriate for their culture. But God also has some very specific requirements that he places on all cultures. Now, I put a couple of them up here. These are not, this is not exhaustive. But this will certainly shatter some cultural expectations of worship and then not others and, and kind of in different directions too. But did you know that uh, uh, the Bible actually tells us to sing? It's actually a commandment of Scripture to sing to the Lord? I think we can all agree on that one, right? And probably most churches would. I don't think there's necessarily a church out there that says, we don't sing when we worship, thank you very much. There's some form of singing. But some churches do differ over whether they use instruments. The Old Testament talks about praising God with instruments, but the New Testament never does. So some Christian churches don't use instruments. Uh, clap your hands. I think that one's probably pretty okay in most cultures. I don't know if anyone says, you may not clap your hands here. All right? Has you ever been to a church where no one can clap their hands? Okay, I think that's a pretty good one. All right, what about this one? Shout to the Lord. And I don't mean the song. Yeah, I don't mean sing the song. I mean actually shouting to the Lord. Are there churches that would not look favorably on shouting to the Lord? Yes. Might there be some even here who, who would be a little, I don't know, curious? We'll use that word. If someone began to shout to the Lord right here in our service? Probably so. This is a biblical commandment. Dance. Someone mentioned dance, or a couple people. And I mentioned, oh, there's different types of ways that people would dance. But there are certainly churches where dancing, ooh, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. And it's not common in our church, for sure. I don't think most of us did any, I don't think anyone did any dancing here today. If you did, you did it right in your seat. I didn't see it. Uh, sometimes other things happen. Uh, it's not common, but it happens. But what if all of us at some point or another are expected by God to dance before him in worship? That it brings him glory and honor. That might challenge some of our cultural assumptions. Now, I am not from New England, but one of the things that I have a, I'll call it a love-hate relationship with, is how staid New Englanders can be, how reserved New Englanders can be. There's aspects of that that I love. I think it's great. Uh, I, you know, when you can be in a room with other people and no one's like shouting, it's kind of nice to me when I want peace and quiet. Or, uh, you know, when, when no one's kind of overwhelming you with their, you know, kind of outbursts or whatever, uh, emotional or otherwise, it's like, oh, that, that's a little easier to live with. But it also, it also brings with it 
this reserve where we hold back things that are good, hold back things that are true, like, I don't know, God is worth dancing for. Now, I hate dancing because I'm so bad at it. I mean, I love the idea of dancing. I really do. And I like to move, and I like to move in rhythm, but I like to move in rhythm like this. This is my comfort space for dancing. And if, if I weren't tied to a microphone, maybe I'd go like this, you know? That's kind of my dancing. It's typical, lame, white guy dancing. <laughs> you know, my feet don't really leave the ground, just my heels, right? There's a pivot here and there, but that's kind of it. I don't know what these things are doing, right? But sometimes I just need to dance before the Lord. Sometimes I do. And sometimes I do dance before the Lord. They're the rare ones, but it happens. But, but might we judge those who do it? Might, if we dance before the Lord, judge those who don't? Or at least they don't do it enough for us. Or they don't do it the way we would like them to do it. I read an article as I was preparing this week, and it was about raising hands. And you know the scripture talks about raising hands, right? It says, raise your hands when you pray. But it never says to raise your hands when you worship. But some churches, man, if you don't have your hands raised, you must not be filled with the Spirit. You must not love the Lord. What's going on with you? You're dead inside, right? And other churches, if you raise your hand, then you must be some wacko out there, you know, I don't even know what you describe them as. But it's like, you know, what is that person doing raising their hands? We're not that kind of church. <laughs> Holy roller, right? And so we have to be careful. We have to be careful about this. Uh, I, it goes for hospitality too, though, right? So I was up here a few weeks ago, and I'm saying, look, let it be known that at Fellowship Church, if you just serve some tea and some crackers, that counts as hospitality. And I think that's, I think that, I, I stand by that. That's enough. But then we got home, and Sonia said, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm Puerto Rican. And that would never be enough. That would never be enough. Okay, it doesn't have to be a feast, but it's got to be more than just crackers and some tea if you're going to be hospitable to someone. And different cultures have different expectations and expressions of even of hospitality. Uh, I'm reminded of the scripture. Uh, you guys know the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus is at the house of Mary and Martha. These are two of his really good friends. And Jesus is teaching and Martha is in the kitchen preparing food for everyone. And Mary is sitting in the, in, the, in the, I don't know, the sitting room. And she's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. Now, culturally, Mary should have been in that kitchen. She should have been helping her sister Martha get the food ready. Because culturally, men sit at the feet of the rabbi and women prepare the food. And so Martha comes to Jesus. She says, Jesus, can you talk to my sister, please? She's not helping. And I'm in there slaving away. She's doing nothing, right? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And you just kind of, you can just hear the tenderness in the reading of the words. Martha, Martha. Oh, sister. Oh, my beloved Martha. You're worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. 
And so there's a great lesson here about sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's a great lesson here about putting God first. But there's also a lesson here about going against some cultural expectations because not every expression of culture is good. Now, we live in modern-day United States, and to look back 2,000 years and say, oh, those, those uh, uh, requirements of women 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, yeah, good thing Jesus upended those. But Jesus will also upend some of our own expectations culturally. And I love that in our church we have a, a mix of cultural expressions and a mix of cultural expectations, which sometimes can make things difficult, but also brings with it this beauty and this uh, wonder and this uh, great experience of learning from one another. But Jesus has something to say to encourage and discourage aspects of every single culture on earth. Every single one. So he's an, he's an equal opportunity supporter and an equal opportunity offender of cultures. So for example, if we were to say, well, you know, we're enlightened. We're enlightened here. So we've kind of jettisoned all those bad, that bad cultural baggage. And now we've, especially the church, the church in the United States, oh my goodness, we've had hundreds of years of revivals and Bible teaching, and so we've rooted out these uh, cultural expressions that are not honoring to the Lord. But then, you know, some churches won't let you dance. And maybe the ones that do judge the ones who don't. Those are cultural expectations. Again, how you do it, when you do it, where you do it. All those things, cultural expectations. And Jesus says, no, no, this is not how this works. Um, you don't get to just, you don't get to just um, do it however you want, but you also don't get to, to judge people who, who do it differently than you. And I actually read something really helpful. Uh, li like him or not, this is from um, John Piper. And he was talking about this question, and he says, you know, the form of worship, the style of worship, um, even some of the content of worship. By the way, some churches focus more on the grace of God. Some people focus more on the majesty of God. Some churches focus more on the glory of God. Some people focus more on the holiness of God. Uh, we do our best, and I'm sure we don't do it, well, we definitely don't do it perfectly. We may not even do it well. We try to encompass all of these things. Uh, but there are, there's lacks in even the content of our worship, especially when we think about our songs, our singing. Um, one of the reasons I try to preach through whole books of the Bible at least uh, once a year is I don't want to just talk about the things that I like to talk about. You know, we try to bring in the whole counsel of God, but we don't do it perfectly. Uh, but when we emphasize one thing, you inherently and necessarily de-emphasize something else because... We don't have an infinite amount of time in the week to gather to worship. And so we pick and choose. But he says all these different types of worship, it, there is a sense in which God says, we leave it to your judgment to do, the, to do what's right and do what's good. But it's not just your judgment. Right? And this is, where, this is where, again, Mary 
is instructive, instructive for us. We need to take our judgments. We need to take our perceptions. We need to take our preferences. And we need to go to the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to structure our collective times of worship? How do you want us to worship at home? How do you want me to worship when I'm by myself? How do you want me to worship when I'm with other believers that come from a different tradition, a different culture, a different background? I mean, it's amazing that you can literally, I've been in a Korean worship service in the Korean language, and then all of a sudden I heard a tune. I'm like, I know that tune. I know that song. But, and that's, that's kind of like easy to get into. But then there were parts of it that I didn't have a clue what was going on. And I think even when we know the language, sometimes we feel like that. Like, I don't, I don't connect with this type or style or form of worship. But we go to the Lord and we say, what do you want us to do with this? And he said this. He said that you go to the Lord prayerful, thoughtful, culturally alert, meaning not just, you know, not, not just assuming that there's one way to do things, but there are different expressions. Self-critical, so that you look to your own assumptions first for opportunity to grow and maybe even for error. Bible-saturated, I love that. If you haven't read what God wants you to do in worship, then how can you discern what God wants you to do in worship? He says, God-centered, Christ-exalting, reflection driven by a passion to be filled with all the fullness and I want to suggest to you today, guys, that if you want the fullness of expression of the glory of God, at minimum, at minimum, then we need all of the expressions that this world has to offer. All of them. Not that, not that there aren't aspects of some that can be in error or that can't be improved, but that we cannot just have one perspective on this and encompass the fullness of who God is and what he's done for us. That God delights in uh, people who wail while they cry. I mean, wail and cry while they pray. And he delights in people who have uh, written out their prayers ahead of time with, you know, perfect grammar and, uh, you know, lots of forethought. He's honored and glorified by worship that is enthusiastic and emotional, but God is also honored by worship that is geared towards the mind and geared towards truth. Uh, and, and, and we don't even have to choose necessarily one from the other, but God is honored by each. And so when we approach these questions, we have to be open to all of that to discern what God wants us to do. And so let's get really practical. Uh, we've talk, we're talking about two different things, worship and hospitality and cultural expressions. When you welcome someone into your home, by all means, express to them hospitality in a way that's meaningful for you. Because A, it gives them a taste of something that's maybe different from what they've known. And, and they might find great joy and beauty in it. But also be alert to how they might receive or not receive certain gifts that you have to offer. And then when you go into someone's home, by all means, uh, uh, if you, know, you express your own 
culture as you show up, but be very open to receiving from theirs. Uh, I kind of have a rule, for example, that if someone makes something food-wise to set before me, I'm going to eat it, right? I've yet to encounter something that I couldn't eat, okay? I've eaten, you know, I've I've done it all. Uh, I haven't liked everything, but I've tried everything. And that's just one little way to honor someone else in their culture. But if, by the way, you serve something and someone's not eating a lot of it, just assume they don't like it and let it be. (laughs) Why haven't you tried these fish eyeballs, you know? I don't know what it would be, right? Why haven't you eaten all of them yet? It's like maybe they don't like fish eyeballs and just let it go. Like, that's okay. And the same in worship. When you go into a space, allow yourself some freedom to experience the, the worship that's being offered in that space. Um, but also don't be afraid. For example, here, uh, I've had people over the years say, hey, can we do this song, or can we do more of that, or can we pray this way, or can we incorporate this into our worship? And a lot of times the answer is, yeah, yeah, we can. And I think we have a richer service today than we did years ago, in part because we've received those things, different people's experiences and expressions. Okay, so that's one big tension that we deal with uh, when it comes to worship and hospitality, when it comes to living it out, is that tension between uh, cultural expectations and the way that we show God glory and the way that we show others welcome. But there is a second tension that I want to talk about. And this one is a little, in some ways, easier, in some ways, harder to talk about and to address. But it's this question of quality versus performance. Now, I remember... When I, so I was 15 years old the very first time that I led worship in a church setting in our youth group. I, I may have told this story before here. I had been playing guitar for maybe three weeks, okay? So I knew probably five or six chords. And um, I, I do have some musical training beyond that. So I'm, I, I played trumpet, so I read music, I've played in groups, um, I sang in choirs from a little age, so I've got musical experience, but it was brand new to the guitar. And I showed up at church on a Sunday night, which is um, one of the youth group events, and, and, the, and the youth pastor said, hey, I hear you've been playing guitar, and he had in his hand a songbook and a guitar case. He said, I heard you've been playing guitar, and I said, yeah. He says, do you know any songs yet? And uh, being a very overly, um, what's the word, arrogant? (laughs) Overly confident young man, I said, my repertoire is quite inclusive. That's what I said. That just gives you, that just, yeah, my wife is like, that just gives you a sense of where I was at the age of 15. I've grown a little bit, right? So he goes, great, you're leading worship tonight. The worship leader has had to work. And I freaked out. I'm like, all right, I got this. I got this. So I picked out three songs that I loved, and I knew all the chords for those three songs. First song, I'm strumming away. We're singing. It's great. I'm like, I got this. Yeah. Second song, and if any of you know music, you'll immediately understand the problem here. The second song was in a 3-4 time signature, and I had never learned a strum pattern that worked with a 3-4 time signature so I began to play this song in a 4-4 time signature. 
And all that means is instead of counting one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, I was counting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, in a three, it just was horrible. It was horrible. I couldn't sing it. They couldn't sing it. It's fallen apart. Everyone was really gracious and really kind. And we just kind of slinked our way into the third song, which was fine. And then they invited me back to do it again. And there's an aspect of that that is beautiful and wonderful, right? I can just come and bring the best that I have to offer, and God will look at that and say, I love you, son, for bringing me that gift, the best I have to offer. That said, if I did that to you guys today, almost 30 years later, would that have been okay? I don't think so. No. So there is this, there is this tension. Again, in hospitality, it's, can I just serve tea and crackers? Well, sure. If you can't do anything better, serve tea and crackers. But if you can, why not put out something better for your guests? If all that you can give the Lord is a 4-4 four, four strum and a 3-4 three, three, song, give it to the Lord. But if you can give better than that, give better than that. You want... Yes. She's saying the context matters. So if someone just shows up your at your home and that's all you have, perfect. Give what you have. Right. Financial reasons, planning, like didn't weren't able to plan for it. Maybe uh, your skill level is pretty low on hospitality, uh, uh, which but again you can grow in it, right? And so there's the heart is a factor. But here's the thing about the heart being a factor. The heart being a factor cannot be an excuse to give less than you can. So for example, what we see in the scripture is this verse here from Colossians uh, 3, which says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And I have heard this verse used to challenge people to do better, and I've heard this verse used to excuse people for doing worse. I've heard it used both ways. And in a sense, it can be used both ways. So my heart for the Lord, well, it was an arrogant heart when I was 15, but I really did want to serve my church community and leading people in worship. That was genuine, and I loved to worship the Lord, and I did then. That was genuine. So my heart in that sense was in the right place. But it would not be a display of my heart being in the right place if I didn't press on to more and better not so I can perform for people, but because the Lord deserves the very best that I have to offer. Uh, you know, we've heard stories of people who, again, like let's say you show up to church and it's, you're kind of sloppy, okay? You're just not looking good. Let's just say you're really not looking good, okay? And then you say, well, what does this verse have to say about something like that? Okay, well, I think what it tells me is if I can do better, I ought to do better. But then we have to ask, what is better? 
And now we get into cultural expressions. Because who's to say that dressing nicer is better? Because maybe better is making that person who came to church today for the first time feel more comfortable even though they're not dressed up in a suit. Right? It gets really tricky, doesn't it? And so there is freedom in this. But to actually ask the question, Lord, am I giving you my best? Am I doing this with intentionality or am I doing it because I don't care? Am I doing it to honor you or, is it, or am I doing it because I'm lazy? And these things matter. They really do matter. Um, but if you don't have something to give the Lord, then he doesn't expect you to give it. There's this great verse in Leviticus chapter 5. In Leviticus chapter 5, it says, if you sin, then you need to bring a lamb and you need to sacrifice that lamb to the Lord as an offering for your sin. But if you can't afford a lamb, then you can bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for your sin. One is a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Do you know how much a lamb would cost? How much does a lamb cost today? Do you know, Becca, by any chance, how much does a lamb cost today? What's that? And how many pounds were there? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm? $60 for a, for a whole lamb. Oh, 60 pounds and 300, $300 to $400 for a lamb. Do you know how much a pigeon costs? Just as today, pigeons cost nothing because people typically don't raise pigeons. They catch pigeons. Same with doves. Uh, they were there because they were, they were an option because they were free. So if you don't have $300 to go sacrifice for your sin, which, by the way, it's not like, oh, I need $300 this year to sacrifice for my sin. No, you're going to sin again tomorrow. Okay, so we're talking potentially. Uh, by, by the way, great incentive. We could institute a program here at church. Every time you sin, you have to give an extra $300. I think you might, you might start sinning less. You just might. But what you'd probably start doing is you'd probably start lying about your sins so you don't have to pay the money, right? But if we said, if you don't have the $300, that's okay. Just write a nice letter acknowledging your sin. That's kind of, that's almost what God's doing here. He's saying, if you don't have it, I'm going to give you a free option. But here's the thing. You have to give something. You can't blow it off. So there are restrictions and limitations and expectations that God sets on his worship. But within those limits and expectations, there is freedom. There is openness. There is, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When, when you, when you uh, allow for someone's lack of resources, there's accommodation for you. I had a youth pastor, a different youth pastor in, in high school. He had and still has probably the worst voice I've ever heard in my life. And he had the most beautiful worship I ever heard in my life. I used to intentionally sit in front of him at church so I could hear him worship because he would worship with all his heart and it would sound horrible and I would just delight in it. He was giving the doves or the pigeons. 
someone who can sing beautifully. We had a girl in our youth group who, uh, I don't know if you guys know what Allstate is in music. Someone who competes, and she was in the Allstate choir, which meant she was one of the best singers in high school in the entire state of Tennessee. I also loved sitting in front of her when we worshiped because she loved the Lord and she sang beautifully. I love them both. And I think the Lord loves them both. I know the Lord loves them both because they both gave everything that they had. They put it all out, so to speak. They put it all on the altar. And so this is so important for us to understand. And actually, the story that we just looked at is very instructive. <laughs> Mary and Martha. What is the best thing that, Mar that Mary or Martha could offer in this moment? Um, you've probably heard this phrase before, whatever is worth doing at all is worth doing well. And I, my research led me to believe that the first oil, Earl of Chesterfield was the first person to write this down in the 1700s. Whatever is worth doing at all is worth doing well. And so for Martha, what was she doing? She was making dinner. So what should she do? She should make the, the bread. She should make the meat. She should make the, the couscous or the whatever it is that she's going to serve Jesus, right? Whatever, the herbs and the spices, and she's going to make it fantastic, and it's going to be the best meal that that man, God, man has ever had, right? Because that's what you do when the Lord of the universe is coming over for dinner, but there was another Chester, not a Chesterfield, but a Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, who said, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And his point is something like this. Yeah, everyone needs to eat, but wouldn't it be better to just throw some crackers on the table and go sit at the feet of Jesus? And so maybe the best thing she could offer in that moment would be a really skimpy meal. But to listen to the words, the teachings and be in the presence of Jesus Christ, that same God of the universe who's over at her house for dinner. And so, you know, it's just this, this thing that, that sometimes the best thing you have to offer is gonna look like something that's not that great to offer with one perspective, but it's gonna look like a beautiful offering from another perspective. Now, what I'm not going to do today is say, and so therefore, we need to do X, Y, Z every time we host someone. And we need to do this, that, and the other every time we gather for worship. Because when I say these are tensions, the, the dynamic of a tension is that it's very hard to resolve it. In fact, sometimes when, if you resolve it, by nature, you violate the requirement of it. To violate the tension of... Uh, whatever is worth doing is worth doing well and if a thing is worth doing it's worth doing badly to violate that tension uh, is, to, is to lose a very important truth and a very important reality so for example uh, Nick's not here today uh, he usually plays piano Nick spent hours and hours and hours and probably spent a lot of money on, on training, tutoring, coaching, you know, lessons, and then went to do a degree at Berklee College of Music on piano. Now, he did all that to the glory of God. 
I, on the other hand, sat in my room and just did my best to learn songs and strum them out and bang them out on a guitar starting when I was 15. No lessons. I, I didn't really have money for lessons. And I didn't go to school for it. But then I come and I bring the best that I have. And then someone like David, David came to our church and he wanted to play guitar. And I said, hey, would you play bass instead? And he's like, sure, I'll do that. And then he just got better and better and then he fell in love with it and he does it to the glory of God. And he still plays his piano, he still plays his guitar, but he loves playing his bass here to serve you guys as we worship. And then Gisela, who's downstairs, uh, we had this phenomenal drummer. I mean, phenomenal. He had, he had both a Berkeley degree and then a master's degree in percussion and drums. He had studied in Spain, uh, here in Boston. He's now a professional musician, but he would come every Sunday and play at our church. And then when he finished all of his school and went into his career, he said, you know, I'm moving. He still plays in his church where he is, which is awesome. He said, I'm moving. And Giselle said, hey, can I play drums? And I said, do you play drums? And she said, no, but I'll learn. And so she came in and just practiced. And I come in on Saturday afternoon and she's practicing. I come in on Thursday evening, she's practicing. And now she's teaching other people in our church how to play drums. I mean, I mention these because they, they're so tangible, right? But each of us put a different intentionality into developing a skill. We're each at different levels but we all do it to the uh, glory and honor of God. And it was right, I think, for Nick to do what he did. And it was right for me to do what I did. If I had done a, a, a master's degree in music, I wouldn't have been able to do a master's degree in theology. It's like, you have to choose, right? And so this part of the, of the tension frees us from feeling inadequate, frees us from feeling like, We've got to measure up to someone else's standards. This is what frees us from performance. But this side of the equation is what frees us up from unnecessary mediocrity. I can't tell you how many times I've struggled because I've been on worship teams where people showed up and they didn't even know how to play the songs that they, we were asking them to play. And the kind of thing was, no, it's for the Lord. We're not performing. It's like, yeah, it's for the Lord. <laughs> You're... If, if you're performing for him, right? So practice, show up prepared. Don't be lazy about this. So it's, that's where these tensions lie. And it's not just somewhere in the middle. It's that each of us are going to find different places in that tension for different areas of our life that will be different from someone else. And again, here's the thing. You don't get to judge someone else for where they fall in that tension unless it's clear that either they're coming in such a way that displays that they don't care very much about honoring the Lord or they're coming in a way that they require so much perfection that it's a performance. The tension not only uh, is difficult to break, but it also keeps us from being in these extremes. So tensions aren't bad, but they're hard to live in, right? So whether it's understanding the cultural dynamics of worship and cultural dynamics of hospitality, or whether it's dealing with this tension of how do I do the best I can do without overwhelming myself, without, without judging myself inadequate when God is receiving the gift I offer, 
And these tensions are really helpful. And then the, here's the beautiful thing, because this is the best part, is that you don't have to resolve or figure out or get all these things uh, done on your own. Because what we do is we face these tensions with openness, and then we seek discernment from God within a community of practice. So together, together we can bring something beautiful to the Lord. So by the way, because Nick went to Berkeley, you don't have to. Isn't that wonderful? Because I went to Gordon-Conwell, you don't have to. And it's not just this high level, you know, oh, master's degree, blah, blah, blah. It's not just that. Uh, because, you know, because uh, some people just love to pour out their, their joy and their excitement about God with others as they greet people who are coming in the doors. Then if that's not your strength, you do something else. If there's no joy, we might say, hey, what's going on? but you don't have to show up like someone else. You don't have to look like someone else to be acceptable, to, be, to, be, to honor the Lord, to you know, go down the list. So, but as a community, we can help each other to grow in these areas. As a community, we fill in the gaps that each of us have for one another. As a community, we challenge each other to live in the tension instead of escaping to one of the extremes. And that's... That's the beauty, really, of the fact that worship is not just a private enterprise. It's a collective enterprise. It's a communal enterprise. And the same with hospitality. You get this feedback. Now, one of the dynamics of this is if you don't allow for the communal aspect to have weight in your life, you miss out on this benefit. And I will tell you, it'll be really hard really hard to be faithful if you're trying to do it alone if for no other reason than that you don't have help discerning these things living in these tensions I again way more we could talk about but for today I would like you to just ask the Lord take a moment and ask the Lord God where do you see me being judgmental of others whether they're cultural expressions or, you know, living in this tension. And then ask the Lord, God, where do you see me being judgmental of myself in these things? Because especially on the tension side, it's very easy to become judgmental of yourself, and then you lose the joy of the offering that you bring. So ask those two questions of the Lord. Listen to what he says. And if there's anything else you need to listen around, do that too. But we're going we're to be Mary's for a moment. We're just going to sit at the feet of Jesus and let him teach us. And then we're just going to close with a song of consecration um, as, we, as we finish our time here together today.